You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. What do you really, really believe? That's a big question, isn't it? I wonder, would you believe that the shortest commercial flight in the world is 57 seconds? Do you believe that? Or would you believe that elephants can actually hear with their feet? You're not going with me here, are you at all? Or would you believe, this is my favorite, that once in the Olympics, a roar stopped mid-race to let a family of ducks pass his lane and he still won the race? So whether you and I believe that those things are true or not, doesn't make any difference to our lives at all in any shape or form, does it? However, there are lots of other things that you and I believe to be true that really do make a difference. Let me just think through a couple maybe of illustrations of that. What about when the consultant in the hospital brings you your scan results and they interpret those scan results and they give you the results? You and I believe what we're told about those results, don't we? We trust that professional, they've looked at them, they've analyzed them. That's the truth of what was going on in our bodies. We believe that. Or maybe, can I take you back to your school days? I know for for many of you, you're you're probably still at school, university, um, exams, tests, reports, all those lovely memories flooding back to all of us, I'm sure. Maybe you did better in school than I did. But you get your results in black and white on paper, or probably now it's Google Classroom, isn't it? You get the results, and that's a true reflection of the work you've put in. You mightn't want to believe what it says in that bit of paper, but you've got to accept it, don't you? That's that's the truth. These things, and many more things like that, these truths that we believe really do matter. They make a difference. But when we turn to Isaiah, and this this passage we've looked at this evening, we're going to think about the most significant, the most important, the most spectacular, life-impacting, life-transforming truth that the world has ever heard about. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And whether we believe this really makes a difference. Whether we believe this will have an impact on our lives, not just now, but forever, eternally. We've just read from Isaiah 52 and 53, and this passage I've already mentioned, it's called sometimes the fourth servant song. The first servant song, Isaiah 42, and there's four of them. But Isaiah's prophecy was probably written around 600 B.C., long, long time ago. Many of the people were in exile in Babylon. But here in these servant songs, we have an amazing message, a wonderful, glorious truth about a figure that Isaiah calls the servant or the servant of the Lord. Now, who is the servant that we read of in these servant songs? Well, back in chapter 42, verse 1, if if you're able to flick back in your Bibles, this is what we read of the servant. It says there, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. 
are right at the very start of our reading this evening, chapter 52, verse 13. This is what we read of the servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. We know who the servant is, don't we? This servant is the one who elsewhere Isaiah calls him Emmanuel. That means God with us. Or elsewhere, Isaiah calls him the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Who is the servant? The servant of the Lord in Isaiah is the Messiah, is Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world, the savior of the world, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That's who the servant is in this book of Isaiah. And this message about this servant, it's the gospel, isn't it? This is the most significant, most important, most spectacular, life-transforming truth the world has ever heard about. Would you believe that a holy God could love people like you and I this much? That we could spend weeks exploring the, the rich depth of this one servant song. But you'd be thankful that we're not going to do that this evening. Um, but we're going to zoom in on just six verses, chapter 53, verses 1 to 6. But look with me at the very first verse of chapter 53. And this is where this, this whole theme or idea of believing comes from. This is where, where I've got it from, straight out of the text. Look at that, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? See, this message the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus. It's all about him. The text here talks about the arm of the Lord being revealed. That's getting at his saving, rescuing power revealed in the gospel. And the question at the very start of chapter 53 is who has believed? And that may well reflect a question by the, the remnant of people, the faithful, the believers in Isaiah's day. But who has believed? Who has believed throughout history? Who believed at Jesus' first advent? Who believed in the early church? Or right up today, who has believed this message about the servant of the Lord? What's the answer? Well, the answer is a minority of people, isn't it? Not everyone has believed in this servant, this message. In Isaiah's day, it was a a small, faithful remnant of people. Sometimes you hear that language used of them. That's quite staggering, isn't it? Because this message, this gospel, this good news about the arm of the Lord, the saving power of God, this is the message that everyone everywhere desperately needs. Isn't that true? And yet, so many people do not believe. John quotes this very verse in his gospel, John 12, 38. The context in John is people seeing with their own eyes Jesus' miracles. You're witnessing what Jesus was doing, some of those spectacular things Jesus did. People saw them. Didn't just hear about them, they saw them. And yet John says they still would not believe in him. 
Or the Apostle Paul also references this very verse in Romans 10, 16. You know, there, the context is people hearing the good news, hearing the gospel, but many would not accept it. You know, many would not believe. Now, let's fast forward through time and history to 2023. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's 2023. But who has believed this message? And Mac Rafelt and Desert Martin and Tober Moore and Claudie and Feeney, where I'm from, who has believed is the question that rings out from the start of this chapter. Or let's make it personal. I wonder, have you believed this message? And I'm not asking if you, if you know about it. We thought about this this morning, didn't we, if you were here? It's not the question, do you know about Jesus? Have you heard the gospel? I'm not asking if you're, you're a faithful church attender. Have you believed? That's the crucial question. I wonder, has the grace of God reached down into your life? Has the Holy Spirit opened up your eyes? Have you turned from sin, trusted Jesus? Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do God's love for sinful people like me and you is real, isn't it? His grace is amazing. We thought about that in Ephesians this morning. His mercy is miraculous. Do I wonder, have you experienced all of that for yourself? Are you trusting in, relying on, clinging to Jesus? If you are, if you have, then surely when you and I consider this message, are we not almost overwhelmed? When we sing about our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer, as we have done this evening, when we sing about our Redeemer and our Savior, are we not so almost overwhelmed at the thought that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he has done so much for us. I wonder what do you really believe? As we move on from that, that very first verse, I really like the message paraphrase of Isaiah 53 verse 1. I think it helpfully leads us into what follows. This is the message. Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? And that leads us into the next few verses. You know, what did God's saving power look like? Well, what I want to do, just to help us grasp all of this, I want to take two words, probably two familiar words. And I want us to think through these verses under two of these, these two very significant words. You know, what's Isaiah's prophecy saying to you and I today? What's he saying about Jesus? What's he saying about the gospel? And the two words very simply are rejection and substitution. So let's, let's think about these five verses under those two words. Firstly, let's think about rejection. And that's really verses two to three. Now I want to ask you to use your imaginations. Us, slightly older people, aren't very good at that, are we? Um, probably the kids and younger people, you're, you're amazing at using your imaginations. But let, just go with me for a wee moment or two. I want you to use your imagination. And I want you to imagine 
that you are pitching a film idea to some Hollywood producers. Can you imagine? You're struggling, are you, to, to, to think through that through? But I want you to imagine you're in that situation. You're in front of these Hollywood producers. And the script that you have, the idea you have, it's based around people getting themselves into trouble. People who are in danger, who are in difficulties, and people who are really needing help, needing a rescuer, people who are needing a hero. You might be thinking to yourself, that's not a very original script, is it? That's been done many times before. But you're pitching this idea to these producers. And I want to ask you, what would your hero look like? What type of hero would you have in your pitch, in your movie? It's very likely that you and I would have a hero that is a sort of Superman type figure, weren't we? Or Superwoman or whatever it is. It will be someone who is so impressive, so mighty, so strong, so attractive, so forceful personality-wise, so popular. Well, that's the type of hero that we would probably pitch to those producers. That's what the audience wants and expects, isn't it? That's what works on the advertising billboards. That's what sells tickets to the movies. That's what works for merchandise. That's what works for kids' superhero toys. That's what a hero looks like in our world, and our culture. Now, I want you to tear up the script completely. Because in Isaiah 53, when it comes to the reality of the greatest rescue and the greatest rescuer in history, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, who came to save people from their sins, he did not fit the modern-day hero profile at all. In fact, if you think about it, he didn't even fit the Messiah profile that many people were expecting in those days. So many people were waiting for that all-conquering hero, the one who would overthrow the Romans, set up a political kingdom right there and then. Jesus didn't fit that profile at all. What was the servant of the Lord like? What was the greatest rescuer in history like? What was Jesus like? Well, this Old Testament prophecy tells us in great detail. Let me read verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 53. This is Jesus. This is the Savior of the world. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not ray ortland summarizes it like this he says jesus was an unpromising person in a failed nation the saviour of the world, the Messiah. On the outside, on the surface, at a superficial level, Jesus was unimpressive. Jesus was unremarkable. He was unattractive. We're told here he had no beauty. That's really strong, isn't it? It wasn't like 
He had a little bit of beauty. He had none. No beauty. Verse 2. Or earlier on in our reading, chapter 52, verse 14, we read there, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, as far marred beyond human likeness. And of course, that points towards the cross, his suffering, what he went through for us. With Jesus, there was no beauty or majesty at all. There was nothing to attract a crowd. There were no royal trappings. It wasn't like, is it going to be in June, the coronation of King Charles III? That's going to be some affair, isn't it? It's going to be broadcast around the world. There's going to be all the horses and the pomp and the ceremony and the bands and the music. It wasn't like that with Jesus. Here was a lowly, humble servant. We're told here it was like a root out of dry ground, which would be withered and thrown away. Of course, that points towards his ultimate rejection. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Jesus, it's hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? The Savior of the world, when he came, was treated with disdain, contempt, as if he was worthless. Or at the end of verse 3, we esteemed him not. Essentially, that means he was treated as if he had no value at all. He was worth nothing. This wasn't like a Hollywood movie, was it? This wasn't what the world expected. And we know that Isaiah's prophecy was was fulfilled in what actually happened to Jesus. Jesus suffered rejection. If I take you back to John's gospel, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Jesus suffered rejection. But this wasn't a shock, was it? It wasn't a failure. This was all part of God's gracious, sovereign plan to rescue people like you and I. People like you and I who by nature are spiritually blind. People like you and I who by nature, as we thought about again this morning in Ephesians 2, are objects of God's wrath, who by nature are rebellious runaways. By nature we deserve God's judgment. By nature, people like you and I also reject Jesus, don't we? Jesus suffered rejection, but aren't we so thankful? God's love is so great. That he doesn't leave us where we were by nature. Let me take you back to that chapter 53, verse 1. The arm of the Lord has been revealed. You know, God's saving, rescuing power and the servant of the Lord in Jesus. And it's only by God's grace, isn't it? It's only by faith that we are enabled to recognize him rather than reject him. As I look at this, this passage this evening, I'm reminded of, of the hymn we sang this morning here in Union Road, By Faith. I think it's the Gettys, isn't it, wrote that hymn. You, by faith, the prophets, like Isaiah, they saw a day, didn't they? When the longed-for Messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant over the grave. Isaiah here 
is looking forwards to that day when the Messiah would appear. For you and I, it's different. We're in a really privileged position because you and I, we look back on that day in history when the Messiah did appear, when Jesus did come, when this prophecy was perfectly fulfilled. We look back and we know that many people did reject Jesus, did reject his message. Isaiah 53 reminds us of Jesus' rejection by people who desperately needed him. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I wonder, have you believed in the one who was rejected by so many? Or I wonder, are you still in the place where you're also rejecting him? You wonder where you're at this evening as you sit in this, in this building. That's the first word, rejection. The second word we're going to think about is substitution. That's really verse 4 to verse 6. During World War II, Christmas Day, 1944, the U.S. forces gained control of a wee Italian mountain village called Soma Colonia. That's not very good Italian, is it? But the very next day, a really intense counterattack happened by the Nazis, by the Germans. And they were going to take back this little mountain village. In the middle of all the chaos and the carnage and the fear, we can only imagine what it must have been like. In the middle of all of that, there was a young 29-year-old artillery spotter called Lieutenant John Robert Fox. And he was stationed on the second floor of a building in that little mountain village. Now, Fox realized that the Germans were coming. He recognized the imminent threat to him and to all his American colleagues. And what he did was radio in a request to base for artillery fire to rain down on the village. And the guy he was in contact with at the base, he said to Fox, Lieutenant Fox, that's going to be on you. And apparently... Fox is reported to have said, fire it, there's more of them than us. It's quite a remarkable story. And Fox was killed in action on that day. Now, during conflict, during the wars, there are lots of stories like that, aren't there? Stories of courage, stories of sacrifice. But that young man, only 29 years old, he willingly, knowingly sacrificed his life for the sake of his American colleagues for the sake of that village. I find that pretty moving, quite inspiring. You'd think that someone would give their life for the sake of others. Let me take you back to Isaiah's prophecy. Verses 4 to 6. You hear we see God's love for a sinful, rebellious world. And we see that it involved an even more spectacular act of sacrifice and this wasn't just to enable an army unit to escape enemy fire this act of sacrifice was to provide a way of rescue of salvation for sinful people who desperately needed a savior people like us Isaiah here is pointing us towards Jesus the Messiah the servant of the Lord Here we're caused to think about 
the sinless, spotless, pure, holy, perfect Lamb of God. And what did he do? He gave his life for people like us. He died on the cross for messed up sinners like me and you. He paid it all. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. He took upon himself the wrath of his father. And that's why I think this second word helps us understand or grasp what Jesus has done for us. Substitution. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. Isn't that what we see in Isaiah 53, 4-6? Now, where does all this come from? Well, it really comes from Old Testament worship. In those days, it was a bit different to now, um, as you'll appreciate. Worship, church, all of that was very, very different. But in Isaiah's day, animal sacrifices were very much part of that worship. And the animal really functioned as a substitute for the people. The sin of the people went on the animal, and in some way, sin was seen to be dealt with. And then once a year, the Day of Atonement, the sins of the entire nation of Israel were seen to be dealt with in some way. However, that was all very much symbolic, wasn't it? That was all pointing towards something else. In Hebrews 10, we read that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of that, it was almost like a signpost pointing towards the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In Hebrews, once again, Hebrews 10, verse 12, we read this, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. In these few verses in Isaiah 53, we have the language of substitution. And I find this quite amazing because this was written many years before Jesus was even born. And it's so detailed. It's so accurate. If you read even on into the rest of the chapter, we're not going to cover that this evening. It describes in great detail what Jesus came to do. And I want to read these few verses again. And as I read them, I do appreciate that these are probably very familiar to most of us. But I'm going to read these few verses really deliberately, really slowly, not really slowly, but I want us to really think about them. Sometimes I find in the Bible we get to familiar parts and we sort of go through the motions, don't we? We know them so well. But I want to read these verses. I want you to really hear the word of God speak into your heart. I want you to be amazed at what Jesus, our substitute, has done for us, to be astounded at the extent of his love. And I want you to notice the language here. He, him, Jesus, and what he has done for our sins, for us, for you and me. And how his dying as our substitute brings us healing, brings us peace, brings us forgiveness, brings us hope. Verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I wonder, what do you really believe this evening? What do you really, really believe? Who has believed our message we read here? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I wonder, do you believe with all your heart, as we're about to sing, that Jesus was rejected, he bled, he suffered as your substitute for your pardon? Do you believe that with all your heart? Do you believe with all your heart that he was raised to overthrow the grave? That he conquered the grave? He took away the sting of death? Do you believe that because of what Jesus has done, your sin has been defeated? The chains have been released? You are free. No more slavery to sin. No more bondage. Can you really sing with all your heart, as we will do in a moment, that I am free? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. What do we really believe? Have you believed in Jesus and all that he has done for sinners like us? If you have, then we ought to be overflowing with joy we ought to want to sing at the top of our lungs even if we can't sing and i can't really sing but i want to sing out loud when i think about god's love in christ if we really believe this if we really believe that jesus was rejected for us if we really believe that jesus was our substitute is our savior And do you know something? When we go out into the world, we've got to take that with us. It's got to make a difference. People ought to see it in us, shouldn't they? And we should have a real passionate desire to share this with our friends, with our families, with our work colleagues. Because this really matters. God is so good, isn't he? He has loved us so much. And we're going to sing now that, that beautiful hymn, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. Let's stand together and we'll sing.